We've been feasting on football and turkey. Now it's time to feast on the Word of the Lord. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 4. We're wrapping up Jonah this morning. So uh, in December we'll be looking at some psalms. Uh, and then January, I think, getting into some stuff uh, in Luke that will carry us through to the resurrection. So now you know what we're doing. All right, let's pick up in verse 5. <clears throat> and Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left from their right, and also much cattle? May God bless the reading and hearing of His Word this morning. Father, open our minds, enlarge our minds, fill our minds, Transform our minds so that we think your thoughts after you. Incline our hearts to your word this morning and forgive us for our foolish addictions and compulsions to the things that dull us to the delights of knowing you, even though or because they make our hearts exceedingly glad. Multiply your wondrous thoughts towards us. And for this, we praise you. Amen. One of the great realities in life is anger. I would dare say that all of us have experienced anger. And all of us have subsequently experienced regret. Anger has a funny way about it. When we become angry, we frequently say and do things that we later regret having said and done. There is an ancient Roman proverb that says, Anger is a brief madness. For some of us, it might be a little less brief than others, but it is, in a sense, a madness that comes upon us, there's a sense, uh, at least I have a sense sometimes when I'm really angry, 
that even as I'm doing and saying things, I'm going, this is crazy. What has come over me? And yet I can't stop. In some ways I feel sort of like the Incredible Hulk. and Things have gone really wrong and now we have to reset the clock on how many days since the last incident of Dad going crazy with anger. David Paulson notes that anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something that you find offensive and wish to eliminate. And so for what he's getting at is that for human beings, anger is tied to our sense of justice and injustice, that there is something that is offensive to us. And what we're trying to do is eliminate it, destroy it. Of course, in the case of our children, we don't want to destroy our children or eliminate our children, just the behavior that we find offensive. Right? But still, anger overcomes us and creates problems for us. We often fail with anger. And as we think of this passage, what we see is that Jonah is no exception. There is something that Jonah finds offensive. Jonah wants to eliminate it. And so Jonah goes beyond the bounds of righteousness because of his anger. And so let's explore that. Our big idea this morning is that God is merciful to the wicked and those who are mad at them. He's merciful to the wicked and to are to those who are mad at the wicked. So we see uh, that right off, the first thing I think I want us to notice is that anger at wickedness is often wicked too. Okay. Now, I'll, I'll put, throw out that disclaimer that anger in of itself is not wicked. But what I will say is, is that most likely our experience of anger tends towards wickedness. And so anger at wickedness is often wicked too, not always wicked too. Jonah has responded to God's question about his anger, which we see in verse 4 there, uh, like he often did, silently. (laughs) Okay? And angrily. Jonah has sort of slunked off. It says that Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city. Now, if we, if we had a map here, my, remember my imaginary map, uh, and we had Israel down here, okay, by the coast of the Mediterranean, and Nineveh, Assyria, up here to the east, Jonah comes from the east, sorry, from the west, goes east, hits the western side of the city, and enters into it, okay? The east is the far side of the city. He's farther away from home. That's weird. (laughs) Why would Jonah go farther away from home? 
could be because of his anger. It could be because of the geography, the topography of the area, that it's a better vantage point to overlook the city. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But I am reminded of saving Private Ryan for some strange reason because there's this one scene when Captain Miller is speaking to one of the soldiers and he shares what goes on within his own heart in the midst of warfare. And he says that every time I kill a man, I feel farther from home and my heart wants to break. And here is Jonah. Every time he gets angry, unrighteously angry, he finds that he ends up farther from home. Whether he realizes it or not. He's less of where he wants to be. And yet he's exactly where he wants to be. Overlooking the city. Now, we have a problem right here whether you realize it or not. When did this take place? Commentator Douglas Stewart says that this actually is out of time. It's out of chronological time. He thinks that this takes place during the initial 40 days. I think he's wrong. I think it is in chronological order. But the question is sort of why would it be out of chronological order? And Youngblood mentions that, that, uh, Jonah basically had an odd uh, request of God. Remember we talked a bit about that last week. That idea of I'd rather die than you be merciful to Nineveh. And in a sense he's bargaining with God. And so he's sitting up overlooking Nineveh, wondering if God is going to kill him or those lousy Ninevites that Jonah hates so much. Being in the desert, similar to the desert that surrounds us, he made a booth for himself there. See, there's a sense in which Jonah is settling in to see what happens. He's not... uh, like one of those memes that you see online, Michael Jackson with the popcorn. The people want to watch and see how something progresses. He's not doing that, but he doesn't have a bowl of popcorn with him, but he wants to watch, and that's going to take time. And he's going to, in the heat, he's going to prepare a booth or tabernacle for himself, a temporary shelter, a crude shelter made from the things that he's able to scrounge around from him there. This makes me think, and I believe it was made to make the Israelites think of the Feast of Tabernacles. Of that time in which every year they would remember their days in the wilderness, their forefathers' days in the wilderness, and build these rough tabernacles and and spend a week in Jerusalem. Celebrating. And God's faithfulness. And here we have something of a very corrupted version of the Feast of Tabernacles because he's sitting in a tabernacle waiting to celebrate the destruction of a people. His goal? Till he should see what would become of that city. And of course, he wants to see destruction. 
That's the horrible thing about anger. Sometimes it reveals what we really love and care about. And sometimes it's not very pretty. I'm sure that Jonah wishes he could go and erase a lot of this. His anger is a historical anger. Precisely because Assyria had subjugated Israel and made Israel a vassal state of theirs, they had oppressed Israel. And though things were okay right now, uh, they threatened to do that once again, that if Assyria rose to power again under the blessing of God, it would possibly destroy Israel. That's hard for us to think about. It's hard for us to get into Jonah's shoes. And the reason why it's kind of hard for us to get into Jonah's shoes, or most of us in this room anyway, is that because America is like Assyria. Now, I'm not trying to say that we're some cruel dictatorship and all of that, but we're the big guy on the block. That's my point. Okay? That we're not the one who is threatened, but we're the one who seems threatening. If you're an Iranian, perhaps, you don't look as, at America as your friend like you would if you were in, in uh, England or Germany, but you look at America as a threat. And so Jonah would sort of be like an Iranian looking at America or Russia and not sure what to expect not having a fondness for that people. And so he wants that big bully on the block to be destroyed. This is an anger over injustice. And because it is unresolved anger, it is a festering sort of anger that results in great bitterness towards an entire people. I think we, some of us on social media saw that this week Charles Manson died. And there were a lot of people who were like cheering. Or it's about time. Because they had bitterness over what Manson had done 40 something years ago. Anger, beyond bounds. This anger of Jonah wants death and destruction for what I am going to call the innocence. Because he doesn't just want the soldiers to die. He doesn't just want the politicians who ordered the soldiers to die. He wants everybody to die. And so he goes beyond this justice. And it ends up being, in a sense, anti-grace. Justice that people don't deserve. Unmerited wrath is what Jonah has in mind. And 
Jesus would speak to this to future genera- a future generation of Israelites when he said in Matthew 9, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jonah is aligning himself right now in opposition to God. The God who has already relented from calamity and has shown mercy to Nineveh, he's aligning himself in opposition to that. I can understand his point to a degree. And I think I see it kind of clearly when I was watching the two towers yesterday with the children. Gollum. You see, Frodo doesn't see Gollum. Frodo sees Smeagol. And he pities Smeagol. But what Sam does is he sees Gollum. And he fears Gollum because he loves his friend Frodo that Gollum wants to destroy. And so there's a sense here in which Jonah is very much like Sam. Afraid and seeing only a dangerous threat instead of someone to be pitied. Do you understand? You see, all Assyrians were alike to him. He thought they all deserved to die. And this ultimately is the root of all genocides that take place. The dehumanization of entire population groups. We saw this in Rwanda, and we've seen it in so many places where people are reduced to being called cockroaches so that you think nothing of them when you destroy them. And that very same spirit is at work in Jonah right here. And so sinners, angry at injustice and wickedness, often exceed the bounds And their anger is wicked as well. Secondly, God's redemptive wrath exposes our destructive wrath. You see, God is not going to let go of that question that He asked Jonah in verse 4. And He begins to make His point. In other words, what Jonah is going to do is go back to remedial class on grace. See, uh, there's a popular thing today. More and more students who go to college have to go to remedial classes because they don't quite measure up in terms of their language skills or their math skills or their science skills. And so more and more of them are taking remedial courses. Jonah is going to take a remedial course. He has forgotten all of the lessons that he learned in the belly of the great fish. And so, just as God appointed the fish, we see that Lord God appointed a plant. And this plant was initially appointed to save him from discomfort. Jonah is going to receive unmerited comfort. Kindness. Compassion. Extending to Jonah even though 
He's burning with anger and hatred, desiring the destruction of others. This is the beginning of God's redemptive, remedial, or merciful wrath. God is about to discipline him as a father disciplines his child. We're going to see a shift that takes place. Initially, his heart is made glad because of this plant. And we're going to see that God changes all of these circumstances in just a moment. But I want you to keep in mind, we're back to the potter's house. Remember, there he said that if he proclaims blessing upon a people and they then go into wickedness, he will relent from the blessing. That's Jonah. We might say, Steve, that's inappropriate because he's talking about a people, talking about a nation. I'll go, okay, Ezekiel 18 parallels this. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? And so Jonah is about to experience some disciplinary wrath because he is turned from grace and is seeking vengeance. The next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Though Jonah's heart is glad, exceedingly glad, greatly glad, that word gadol comes up again, God appoints a worm. This worm doesn't just snuggle up next to the plant. It attacks the plant, attacks the root of the plant, and and ultimately takes away the shade that Jonah experienced. And let's mention that the reason that he needed the plant for shade was probably that his booth or tabernacle was so shabby, it didn't provide enough shade. And so God helped him out. Now God takes away. But he doesn't say, blessed be the name of the Lord, like Job. And so God has removed the shade, and therefore God then appoints a scorching east wind. He's appointed the plant, he's appointed the worm, now he appoints the wind. All of them obey him, but Jonah does not. Creation, just as we see in chapter 1, is again arrayed against Jonah in his disobedience. These east winds were fierce. They could be up to 60 miles per hour. They were hot. They were also ionic. They were charged electrically. And part of what that means is that they could create biochemical imbalances within people. And so you could feel when the hot winds came, you could feel increased depression. It was sort of like seasonal affective disorder. Some people think that's not a real thing. I lived in New England. It's a real thing. Especially if you have Mediterranean backgrounds. Need sun. There's a reason why I'm in the desert. Okay? But think of those of you, uh, those, for those of you who are in California, think the Santa Ana winds. Does anyone cheer when the Santa Ana winds come? 
No. Because <laughs> they're hot. And they tend to stir up wildfires. And that's essentially what's going on here. But God appoints this wind for this remedial lesson. Which makes me kind of wonder. What does God appoint for your remedial lessons? Perhaps some of you are right now in the midst of one of these lessons you don't want. Is it a boss? Is it your children? Is it your spouse? Has God appointed something so that you and your self-righteousness are exposed? And you see not only your need for grace, but you're starting to see your need to express grace or display grace towards other people. So what happens here? Joan is primed because it's not just that the shade is gone. It's not just that the scorching wind has arisen, but we see that the sun beat down or more appropriately attacked. Okay, it's the same word that we saw about the, the worm attacking the plant. The sun attacks the head of Jonah so that he is faint. Jonah is under assault. He's being squeezed. Let's see what comes out. You got another one of these things here on my arm. Bad things come out of that. Pus and blood. Jonah is about to be squeezed. And unfortunately, his anger is going to come out. He speaks to himself. That seems to be the indication of how the grammar functions in this first section of this. It is better for me to die. He's not talking to God yet. He's going to respond in similar terms when God asks him this question. But right now it seems like he's tuned God out. He's not praying like he did earlier in the chapter, but rather he's talking to himself. We all do that. And often when we do, it's bad like this. Okay, It's about fear. It's about unbelief when we talk to ourselves most of the time. We're not preaching the gospel to ourselves as we need to, and that's what Jonah's is doing. He's preaching ungrace to himself. It's better that I die. His destructive wrath is now turned inward. I cannot help but think of one day when I was living in Florida... The subdivision we lived in was similar to the one we are in now. One way in, one way out. And one day there was no way in. Because the police have cordoned off the whole neighborhood. Because as you drove into the neighborhood, the, the house on the corner had a man who thought it was better to die. And his... His means for that was suicide by cop. He wanted the cops to kill him. And so he held the whole neighborhood hostage with his foolery while he sought death. 
And I can see Jonah doing that if there were a police force to come and take care of this for him. He's ready to die. He's not so mad he could spit. He's so mad he could die. And so God then returns with the question that he had given a few days earlier, although he qualifies it a little bit differently. Do you do well or are you right to be angry about the plant? And so God works through grace to expose our lack of grace so that we will begin to hunger for grace. Thirdly, God is compassionate to those He made in redemption. And as I read this right now, the grammar stinks. He's compassionate in redemption. He's compassionate to those that He has made. You see, God's purpose is becoming clearer as we move towards the end of this chapter and, in fact, the end of the book. God is laying out an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says specifically, you pity the plant or you have compassion upon the plant for which you did not labor. You're exerting all of this anger, all of this emotional weight for a plant you had nothing to do with. A plant that appeared overnight and disappeared the next night. Your connection to this plant lasted one day, he's saying. And yet you are this concerned about the plant Did Jonah have a misplaced compassion? I think he had a selfish compassion. It wasn't really the plant that Jonah was worried about. It was his shade that Jonah was worried about. But we see that Jonah is angry enough to die about a plant that he didn't plant, a plant that he didn't feed, a plant that he didn't water. Jonah is angry about a plant that sprung up and died in the course of about a day. Jonah is demanding grace. But the flip side of this is that Jonah wants an entire city to be wiped out. Which is of greater value to Jonah? Right now, Jonah's comfort exceeds his value, the value he places on mercy. God continues. But again, I want us to pause and note this. God is engaging Jonah here. He's trying to, he's drawing something from Jonah. He's not banishing Jonah because Jonah is a sinner. He's not casting him out. He's not condemning him in this. And so let us remember that though we wander and stray, God often engages us to bring us back. Do not believe the lie of the evil one that if you mess up, you are condemned. Do not forget the faithful mercies of God when you have failed. 
but rather see one who continues to invite you back to engage you. Not because you're so wonderful, but because He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for you that you might have redemption. So, we see He continues... Shall I not pity or have compassion on Nineveh, that great city? The lesser is the plant, the greater is this large city. A city that God apparently, to continue the contrast, has planted, has protected, has provided for, and has done this over the course of many, many years and not overnight. And so we see that God showers compassion upon many people and oddly enough, the livestock. We see that God is not hard-hearted. We're the ones who are hard-hearted in as much as we are like Jonah. He reminds Jonah that these people were morally ignorant. That's the, the idea behind this. They do not know their right hand from their left. This alludes to a phrase that we see in places like Jonah 1, where he, he tells, uh, it's not Jonah 1, Joshua 1, sorry. Too many J's. The beginning of Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And then, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success where you go. Now, the Ninevites didn't have Torah. They didn't have the law to help them to, to know what was right and what was wrong. And so they were morally, in a sense, all over the map. Turning left, right, up, down, back, forward. And so God wants to be merciful to them in their ignorance. But as we think about this text, here is Jonah who has Torah, who is not living in light of Torah, but is, has turned to the right or left. Jonah who represents Israel, who though having Torah, does not often live in light of it, And when God sends His servants, the prophets, to Israel to bring them back, they often tune them out. Jonah wants mercy for Israel, who continually sins against the light, but does not want mercy for ignorant Nineveh. Do you get the picture? God's pity towards the Ninevites points us to a greater compassion that was yet to come. The greater compassion was that He would send His Son not just to temporarily delay calamity, but to to produce or uh, procure salvation for this people Not just Israel, but those Gentile folk too. 
as we see in Ephesians 2, the, the people who were foreigners to the covenant, strangers and aliens, they're brought in into one new humanity. They're not excluded, but in Christ Jesus, the Jews and the Ninevites become one people. That's what Jonah should have been longing for. But he wasn't. That's what we should be longing for. But too often it isn't. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. It says in Romans 11, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Jonah is becoming one of those who has fallen. That's why he's experiencing this redemptive wrath. His, his falling, we hope, is not a permanent sort of falling, but a temporary kind of falling. What we see in James 2 ought to encourage us to be mindful. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That while there's a lot of me that really identifies with Sam, Gollum's evil, man. I'm supposed to remember Frodo, where mercy is triumphing over judgment. Until it has no option. I need to be more like Sam than I am. I'm sorry, more like Frodo than I am Sam. And perhaps we're the same way. You see, Jonah is ultimately angry about the gospel. He does not want God to justify the wicked. Jonah is interested, it seems, in nationalism. God justifying Jonah's people. There is always the deadly danger of nationalism for the Christian. If we place country ahead of kingdom. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. Unless you love it too much. If you love it more than the kingdom of Christ. Because these two kingdoms are not the same. Jonah was living for an earthly kingdom and not for the kingdom of God. And that's why he didn't love mercy outside the bounds of Israel. He wanted it only within the bounds of Israel. The church transcends national boundaries. And so we rejoice when people of other nationalities come to Christ and are part of that kingdom, the greater kingdom. This this text, I think, is pertinent precisely because they, Israelites, are about to go into exile. How are they going to respond to the people around them in exile? 
Are they going to hold on to the old grudges and hate them? Or, as we see in Jeremiah 29, are they going to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you find your welfare? Are they going to love the people around them and pray for their well-being, or are they going to be praying imprecatory prayers for their destruction? And you might say, I'm glad I'm not in exile. And I will say, have you forgotten First Peter already? You are in exile. You're in exile here in Tucson. You are in exile here for the sake of the gospel. You are in exile here so that you will seek the welfare of this city instead of being the judge of this city. So God engages Jonah about his anger. As you read, he's also engaging us about our anger. We easily lose our grip on grace. It's thankful that God's grip is stronger, yes. It's easy for us to have a graceless mindset towards others who are not us. God's redemptive, remedial, and merciful wrath comes to discipline us, to correct us, to instruct us. His is rightly measured, unlike ours. His is fully righteous, unlike ours. He is seeking to return us to that place of grace. Now, we don't know What happened to Jonah? This book ends with the question mark. We don't know. And that's the point. What next? Not just what would Jonah do, but what would Israel do? And we who read it on this side of the cross, what will we do? Will we have pity upon the lost around us and share God's compassion? Or will we withhold the news of mercy in Jesus Christ because we fail to grasp how undeserving we are too? And that is the question I leave you with. The one that God left His people with at the end of Jonah. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as You have in various ways testified and daily continue to testify how dear and precious to You are mankind. And as we daily enjoy so many and so remarkable proofs of Your goodness and favor, who grant that we may learn to rely wholly on Your goodness. Many examples of which You have set before us and which You would have us continually to experience. That we may not only pass through our earthly course, 
but also confidently aspire to the hope of that blessed and celestial life which is laid up for us in heaven through Christ our Lord. Amen.